On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today our topic is Vedanta, ecology, and evolution. Now, some of you know that a few weeks ago I participated in, a, in an interfaith panel discussion uh, about mm, ecological perspectives of the different religions. And nowadays, various religious groups and religious leaders are getting very interested in this topic, in this field of uh, ecological awareness and taking care of the earth. And they're looking for ways to address the ecological problems we as inhabitants of the earth are facing. And they're also finding a lot of beautiful teachings in the different scriptures of the world and the different traditions to support a more ecologically friendly uh, or holistic attitude towards life. And this is also has an added benefit of bringing diverse people together in interfaith panels a lot of the interfaith work has been, up till now, people getting together to discuss, to discuss their different religions and, well, what's the same and what's different. But this is a different because they're actually beginning to discuss another problem. So it bring, brings people closer together. To our ancestors, this earth, our earth, must have seemed infinite. We can imagine very few people, the infinite sky, the infinite extensive land. They had no means of rapid travel, so you could walk for a month and you wouldn't come to the end of anything. And the ocean seemed to go on forever. It was only quite recently, only about two hundred, two and a half thousand years ago, that uh, we even discovered that we live on a globe, that the earth is actually a sphere a limited sphere. But she always seemed big enough to provide everything for us and absorb everything. She always seemed big enough. But now we realize that uh, we are pushing up against the limits of Mother Earth's capacity. The Earth is a limited organism and there are over seven billion of us, seven billion brothers and sisters 
living on Mother Earth. And we are consuming more, more resources and making more waste. So though the Earth may seem infinite and certainly infinite in complexity, she is quite finite in extensity. Now we have the global markets and the television reaching to all the remote corners of the world, spreading the gospel, the modern gospel of luxury and technology. And everybody wants their own air-conditioned house and their own air-conditioned car. Everybody wants one. And another very sad aspect is the spread of weapons to every corner. All the distant corners of the earth are getting very dangerous weapons and so many wars going on. So it's actually depressing to study it. And while I was preparing for this talk, I got into a funk for a couple of days reading about all the very serious challenges we face ecologically. In fact, I would say that we are now facing the biggest challenge of our evolutionary history. And it won't do to just try to ignore it, just to think it will go away, or just to think, well, God will take care of it. We have dug ourselves into the hole, and we shall have to dig ourselves out of it. I am reminded in this context of Peace Pilgrim, Perhaps some of you remember about Peace Pilgrim. She said, problems are opportunities in disguise. If you did not face problems, you would just drift through life. It is through solving problems in accordance with the highest light we have that inner growth is attained. Now, collective problems must be solved by us collectively. And no one finds inner peace who avoids doing his or her share in the solving of collective problems. So we are facing a challenging collective problem, and it calls for a collective solution. It's calling for an evolutionary leap. We are not going to solve this challenge just by recycling our newspapers and making more fuel-efficient cars. That will help, no doubt. Those things are good. But this is a huge problem requiring a solution of equally large proportions. So we are being challenged to move forward, to move upwards, and take the next step in human evolution, which is the spiritual step. Only then can we hope to curb the consumption, which is now uh, eating up our resources at an unsustainable rate. Some will surely object, why are you dragging religion into this? This is a political problem, this is an economic problem, this is a social problem, an environmental problem. But that's exactly my point. I think it's a spiritual problem as well, and uh, or perhaps we can say a lack of spirituality is the problem. And it has much to do with our attitudes towards ourselves and how we look on the world. 
Now, religions play a major role in shaping our attitudes, shaping how we look on the world and ourselves, how we understand our place in the world and our responsibility. Religions have also in the past contributed to the problems we are now facing by propounding certain kinds of ideas, and so they have a significant role in facing our problems by correcting these ideas. So, the roots of the ecological problem we are facing, we can name so many causes. Industrialization, overpopulation, rampant greed and selfishness, consumerism, hyper-technologization, urban isolation from natural habitats, alienation from nature, dirty power, lack of pollution controls, and so on and so forth. These are all true, and people are trying to address these various issues. And also, people are getting involved in doing things like saving natural habitats or trying to protect whales and tigers from extinction. And all these things are surely good, but they're not going to be enough. So I feel that to address the challenge squarely, we must look down into the deepest roots. What are the deepest roots of of this problem? Let us distill it down to its very cause from the Vedantic standpoint. And I think it lies in a fundamental misunderstanding regarding how we look upon ourselves, how I understand myself as an individual, how I look upon other people, the universe, and what my relation with it, with the universe, and what my place in the universe is. I think most people, most of us feel that we are separate individuals. I am separate from you, and from you, and from everybody else in the whole world. I am an individual with free will, to choose what I want to do, when I want to do it. I can do what I want with my own body and my own person. If I believe in religion, then God may be there, but God is separate from me. God is separate from the world. Though maybe he can intervene in the world if he likes. And in Western democracies especially, we believe we should have the freedom to do whatever we want that in fact it is our right, our God-given right, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a declaration of independence, the famous words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Implicit in this kind of outlook, I think, is uh, hidden the idea that the earth exists for me. My purpose is somehow to extract happiness from the earth. It's interesting to look at the creation myth of the Bible. There we find in the book of Genesis. So God created humankind in his image 
In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Oh, it's interesting, this idea. Subdue the earth. God, God told his creation to subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing. So in some, the outlook of most people is characterized by separation, dissimilarity, the independence of the individual. The world is merely insentient matter. The whole universe revolves around me. <laughs> Just as the ancients thought that the whole, the whole universe revolves around the earth, that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun and the stars and the palm would go around the earth, we are in the same boat. We all think that the universe revolves around me and me and me and me. When such an attitude is held by the majority of seven billion people, we get a lot of problems. Problems of getting along together without killing each other. Problems of damaging the environment to the point that it is damaging us. That, it is, that its ability to support life is compromised. And the problem of our inability to really get together and do something about it. Now Vedanta, as we know, stands in direct opposition to these ideas. Vedanta says, when I say I am separate from you, I'm making a big mistake. When I say the world is separate from me, I'm making a big mistake. When I think that the purpose of my life is to enjoy the world, to seek my happiness by whatever means, I am making a big mistake. Behind the amazing diversity of this universe, says Vedanta, we find unity. It's interesting that even from the standpoint of science, say uh, ecological science, the idea of separateness is uh, considered to be a mistake. Ecology, the science of living beings and their interactions with one another and their environment, um, recognizes that biological beings exist within ecosystems of interdependence in, in which each part, each element of the ecosystem plays an essential role. If you remove or damage one element of an ecosystem, the whole system is affected. But we human beings have forgotten that we are part of the ecosystem of the earth. Even on the biological level, we go from our air-conditioned cars to our air-conditioned offices to our air-conditioned houses, and we get our food in plastic-wrapped packages from the supermarket, and we forget that our life is uh, fun intimately connected with the life of the plants and the animals and with the sun and the sea and the wind and the sky. And we have forgotten our interdependence, our interconnectedness on the spiritual level as well. 
This idea of the pursuit of happiness is also uh, quite a paradox. It's what all people want, isn't it? Happiness. All people want to be happy. That's their fundamental desire. We all seek peace and joy and happiness. But most of us, how do we seek it? Well, we seek it by trying to fulfill some desires for either physical or intellectual or aesthetic or emotional stimulation and by trying to destroy anything that comes in the way of that stimulation, that enjoyment. From such an outlook comes the phenomenon which is called consumerism, the theory that a progressively greater consumption of goods is economically beneficial. That's what we have. The whole world economy is based on this, on ever consuming ever more and ever more. Gandhiji said, he he had a well-known, beautiful quote, the world is big enough to supply all of our needs, but not all of our greed. Big enough to supply all our need, but not all our greed. Here again, of course, Vedanta says, we make a tremendous error. This This paradox of the pursuit of happiness, because true joy... Peace and happiness can never be found through enjoyment of pleasure and stimulation, either economic or physical or intellectual or aesthetic, emotional. We can't catch it. We're chasing happiness and we can't catch it. The more we try to catch it, the more it slips through our fingers. We can get a temporary satiety, a temporary calmness if we enjoy it, but then again, The gnawing hunger comes. And yet, it can be found. Vedanta says that joy, peace, is the very basis of our being. Our true being is rooted in the divine. And there we find the source of all blessedness, all joy. There we are not separate. There we are one. We are all connected in that infinite ground of being, whose very nature is consciousness and bliss. Moreover, in spiritual life, we start to taste happiness as we cultivate spiritual virtues like selflessness, humility, peacefulness, compassion, service. A couple of weeks ago, a few of us went to hear the Dalai Lama speak we were very impressed and moved to meet him. He was speaking at the University of Maryland to a group of, a small group of about 15,000 people in the basketball stadium of the University of Maryland. But he held everyone's attention, and I understood that he's a genuine holy man, a genuine um, sadhu, we can say, who who has, uh, was able to touch each and every person who was there. And he made this very same point, What people all want all over the world is to be happy and freedom from trouble, freedom from problems. He emphasized so much a common humanity. We're all, whatever differences we may have, whatever different religions we may have, whatever different philosophies, we're all human beings who want basically the same thing. 
he also is uh, quite active in interfaith work and he makes it a point wherever he goes to have at least one interfaith discussion. And uh, in our interfaith discussion we had just uh, the other week that I was telling you about, uh, we did find that the religions all have wonderful ideas about taking care of the earth and mm, the earth belongs to God or it is entrusted to our care. It is sacred. The earth itself is sacred. The world is a gift to us from God. Some of these ideas came up in our discussion. Now, indigenous traditions, like the Native American traditions, especially speak to this reverential attitude, uh, reverential, grateful attitude to Mother Earth. And they often seem to resonate very closely with the ancient Vedic ideas. One of the speakers that, at our conference was a Native American, or he used the term American Indigenous Peoples. And he f- delineated five basic principles common to American Indigenous traditions. First, that the world is alive, that everything reflects consciousness, everything in the world reflects consciousness and second that it follows from the first that everything needs to be appreciated in memory and in ceremony they have simple rituals of appreciation there should be reciprocity in all relations always give something back if they cut if they need to cut some firewood from a tree they'll first they'll, they'll request the tree They'll speak to the tree. Then they'll cut the branches. Afterwards, they'll make a little offering to the tree in gratitude. Recognizing the natural balance and equilibrium of the earth. And developing a rational way of thinking based on these four other four principles. These are the five principles he uh, delineated. So beautiful teachings they have. And the rabbi who was there made a very pertinent comment. After our discussion, it was clear that we had a lot of beautiful ideas. And she said, we have the principles, we have the ideas, but people aren't getting it. People aren't getting it. They're going on as if with their heads, with their eyes covered by blinders. They're going on with our heads in the sand. So that's why we need something more than just ideas. We need transformation. I'd like to look a little more closely at one aspect of the Vedic viewpoint, at the integrated vision of the ancient seers of India. In their view, life is seen as a cycle of give and take. One's life is a participation in the cosmic yajna, the cosmic yajna, the cycle of give and take, the network of interconnectedness. It is in harmony with the cosmic order called Ritam, obeying the spiritual laws governing the universe. Spiritual laws like the law of cause and effect, the law of sacrifice or unselfish action, leading every being to greater spiritual unfoldment. 
This term yagna is very important. It's also difficult to translate. It's one of those terms that we might better leave untranslated. Often it's translated as sacrifice. And originally it referred to the fire sacrifices of the ancient Vedic peoples, the offering the ghee and other substances into the sacred fire. This was a yagna or a sacrifice. But the word's meaning has evolved to mean much more than that. Also, a sacrifice in English has a little bit of a sense of loss. I'm losing something. I'm giving up something. Whereas yagna expresses this idea of give and take. Swami Ranganathananda gave a very beautiful definition. Yagna is the cosmic principle expressing what modern science has recognized as the interrelatedness of all things. It it encompasses unselfish action, sacrifice, give and take, participating in the great cycle in which everything depends upon everything else. So in the Vedic conception, as we receive from the universe, so we must give back to the universe. And there were five uh, daily yagnas to be performed by the uh, traditional people Mm. as a symbolic reminder of our interconnectedness and our debt to others. These are the uh, Deva Yagna, Brahma Yagna, Pitri Yagna, Nri Yagna, and Bhuta Yagna. We have uh, a yagna towards the divine to the, the seers, the rishis, our ancestors, other human beings, and animals. These were done, say, to the divine through uh, a worship. Our yagna to the rishis is studying the sacred scriptures, studying the seers, the, the, the words of the seers is paying our homage to them. Our ancestors are worshipped by a simple symbolic ritual of offering water. Uh, Other human beings, well, we feed them. And animals, other animals, by feeding them, we we, uh, express our debt to them and our uh, our interdependence, recognize our interdependence. So in the Vedantic approach, of course, everything is seen as sacred, because the divine is within all. The sun, the moon, earth, fire, water, wind and sky, all are expressions of the divine. The the Upanishad instructs us to cover everything with the Lord. Cover everything with the Lord. Whatever there is, moving or unmoving in this universe, is to be covered with the Lord to see the Lord within everything. This naturally gives rise to a deep reverence for the earth, deep reverence for the earth. This uh, idea of yajna is specially developed in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 3. I'll read a little quote. The Prajapati, the creator, having in the beginning created humankind together with yajna, 
said, By this you shall multiply, this shall be the milch cow of your desires. Cherish the devas with this yajna, and may the devas cherish you. Thus, cherishing one another, you shall gain the highest good. The devas cherished by yajna will give you desired for objects. And Krishna continues, So he who enjoys objects given by the devas without offering in return to them is verily a thief. We can contrast this with the Bible passage. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is so, is on the one hand, similar. We also have, uh, by this yajna you shall multiply. It's by yajna that you will, and you will gain your desires. By yajna you will gain the highest good. In the Vedic times, the various forces of nature were personified and called devas. So here Sri Krishna is actually explaining the way of life based on the interconnectedness of all things, of ourselves with the earth, the plants, the sun and the moon. Cherish the devas with this yajna and may the devas cherish you. Devam bhavayata dena te deva bhavayantavaha parasparam bhavayanta shreyaf paramavapsyatha. Cherish the devas with this yajna and may the devas cherish you. Thus, cherishing one another, you shall gain the highest good. This parasparam bhavayanta, mutually cherishing one another, that is the attitude. The devas, the shining beings in charge of the various forces of nature. If we take pure waters from the rivers and return to it polluted water, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. We are rather living as thieves. If we take pure air from the sky and fill the sky with exhaust fumes from a million factories and power plants, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. If we take the pure fruits of the earth, but put into the earth only our garbage and poisons and pollution, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. We are living as thieves. When we cut down a tree, what if we were to plant five trees? If we need water for our factory, what if we filtered out the pollutants before we put the, give the water back to the river? Then we start to understand this principle of yajna. Gita calls this universal cycle of, of, of interconnectedness a chakra, a wheel. It's a wheel of, chakra, of yajna, a yajna chakra. Evam pravartitam chakram nanu vartayati hayaha aghayurindriya ramo bogham parthasajivati One who in this world follows not the wheel of yajna thus set revolving, living a life of sin and being delighted in the senses, lives in vain. 
A life of unrestrained consumption is a life lived in vain. A purely selfish life is a life lived in vain. A life in which we fail to play our role in the yajna chakra, fail to play our small part in the great symphony of life, is a life lived in vain. Every action has its effect. Unrestrained consumption, unrestrained delight in the senses, this indriyaramaha, has repercussions on many planes. Environmental problems, social problems, personal problems. And of course, it's a spiritual problem. I'd like to mention uh, a small example. It's a, it's a small, uh, simple example of a failure to recognize interconnectedness. From and This example actually came up yesterday. Uh, someone was, we were doing some cleanup outside and someone wanted to spray some herbicide on the weeds. And uh, there's one herbicide called uh, glyphosate which is first developed under the brand name Roundup. Probably most of you have heard of it. Now, it's, it's actually an amazing product. You spray it on weeds, and the weeds die. And uh, then you can plant the, what you want to plant there. And the company that originally developed this product has done some genetic engineering and developed crops that are resistant to this glyphosate. So it's you can, a farmer can plant a whole field of soybeans or potatoes or whatever it is. And when the weeds come up, he or she can nicely spray some glyphosate over everything and the soybeans will be just fine, they won't be affected and all the weeds will die. So you'll get very nice healthy plants and no weeds to uh, sap away the nutrients. It seems like uh, a pure genius, a solution of pure genius. But it turns out that glyphosate is not so good for the earthworms. It's not so good for the other little critters of the soil. Now, earthworms form an essential part of our ecosystem. Spraying glyphosate is a quick and easy way to get rid of the weeds, but it damages the ecosystem. The earth, earthworms are doing great service to the soil. The soil is a living ecosystem. The earthworms are eating mm, decaying matter and turning it into nutrients that can be used by the plants, increasing the soil's fertility. Without the earthworms and other critters that live in the soil, the soil gradually dies and loses its ability to provide nutritious food. So this is one example of a practice being followed all over the world that overlooks the principle of interconnectedness. It's just taking one problem of weeds and finding another solution of herbicide, not understanding that, well, it, it's, such a, it's much more interconnected than that. It's much more complicated than that. The solutions are not going to be so easy. We'll turn to Swami Vivekananda. He says, he notes that thinkers in ancient India gradually came to understand that the idea of separateness was erroneous, that there was a connection among all those distinct objects. There was a unity which pervaded the whole universe. Trees, shrubs, animals, men, 
devas, even God himself. The Advaitin, reaching the climax in this line of thought, declared all to be but the manifestations of the One. In reality, the metaphysical and the physical universe are one, and the name of this one is Brahman, and the perception of separateness is an error. There's another beautiful passage where Swamiji describes the interdependence. He says interdependence is the law of the whole universe. He describes the universe as a marvelous interdependence of existence, where the smallest atom is necessary for the existence of the whole. The smallest atom is necessary for the existence of the whole. All things are interpenetrated by that infinite ocean. Their reality is that infinite. And whatever there is on the surfaces is but that infinite. The tree is infinite. So is everything that you see or feel, every grain of sand, every thought, every soul, everything that exists is infinite. So in Swami Vivekananda's understanding, the interdependence ultimately is a spiritual principle because it's based on the reality of everything resting in Brahman. So now I'd like to talk about evolution. In our history of our human species, we have uh, made a number of very important and great evolutionary leaps, as the scientists call them. I don't know much about science, but a little bit. One of them, for instance, is the opposable thumb. That was a great evolutionary leap. It means we could grasp things. Opposable thumb. Not many animals don't have opposable thumbs. So the opposable thumb was a great evolutionary leap. The development of language was a great evolutionary leap. The development of agriculture was another one. We can study, we can see how each one builds upon the previous developments and each step in the evolution is bringing out more of, manifesting more of the divine principle within. Swami Vivekananda used to say that every evolution presupposes an involution. If, the pro, if, the, uh, if man comes from a protoplasm, then the man must have been involved in the protoplasm. So anyhow, in our evolutionary history, we see these different evolutionary leaps. Social organization came up. Then we had an industrial revolution. And now we have an information revolution. So these are all evolutionary leaps. They're changing the world, they're changing uh, the human, lives of human beings in very dramatic ways. And we have come to the point where we need another transformation. This time the required transformation is spiritual. We need a spiritual transformation. We need a new understanding of who we are and what our relation to others and the earth is. Not based on what someone tells us, but based on our own direct experience. When we experience our interconnectedness, our rootedness in the divine ground, which is the basis of all beings and all things. We will not ask, what can the world give to me? 
we will ask, what can I give to the world? I took that from John F. Kennedy. <laughs> that was a beautiful statement he made in his inaugural address. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We need to ask the same thing. Ask not what the world can do for me. Ask what I can do for the world. Then we will understand how our life is a participation in the cosmic cycle of give and take, the cosmic web of interdependence, how our life is to be lived in harmony with the cosmic order. As we receive from the universe, so we must give to the, back to it. This is what Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda have come for. It is what, why they came and took birth in this world is to usher in a new age of spiritual realization. Swami Vivekananda um, foresaw this next step in our evolution. He felt that it was the power released by his master that would set it in motion. He often speaks of a tidal wave of spirituality coming to envelop the whole world. He would write things like, a huge spiritual tidal wave is coming. He who is low shall become noble, and he who is ignorant shall become the teacher of great scholars through his grace. In Madras, when he came back to India from his stay in the West, he made a tour of many places, including stopping early on in Madras, and everywhere he was presented with addresses and he would generally give a reply to these addresses. So the reply to the Madras address is one of these addresses, one of these important speeches by Swamiji. And I'll just read a paragraph from this uh, uh, reply to the Madras address. In the address, the presenters had mentioned their reverence for Sri Ramakrishna, their appreciation of Sri Ramakrishna. So Swamiji mentions this. He says... Your generous appreciation of him whose message to India and to the whole world I, the most unworthy of his servants, had the privilege to bear shows your innate spiritual instinct which saw in him and his message the first murmurs of that tidal wave of spirituality which is destined at no distant future to break upon India in all its irresistible powers carrying away in its omnipotent flood all that is weak and defective, and raising the Hindu race to the platform it is destined to occupy in the providence of God, crowned with more glory than it ever had even in the past, the reward of centuries of silent suffering, and fulfilling its mission amongst the races of the world, the evolution of spiritual humanity." Swamiji was convinced that this evolution will take place. He, would, he predicted the time is to come when prophets will walk through every street in every city in the world. Prophets will come. And he commands us, you be rishis. It's not enough to reverence the rishis of the old. We ourselves have to become rishis. This is the message of Sri Ramakrishna to the modern world, he says. 
This is the message. Care not for doctrines or for dogmas, for sects or for churches. All these count for but little compared with that essence of existence which is in each one and called spirituality. The more this is developed in a person, the more powerful is he for good. He who has most of it can do most good to his fellow men. I'd like to touch upon a few doubts that may crop up in relation to this, in relation to Vedanta, our whole discussion today, Vedanta and ecology and evolution and all that. One is that Swami Vivekananda didn't mention anything about ecological crisis. He did mention once that in Kashmir he loved the natural beauty, but the towns were absolutely filthy. He noticed it. But he didn't address this problem. Now, in 1900, the population was, of the earth was estimated at 1.65 billion, which is, uh, is now more than four times that. Evidently, Swami Vivekananda did not foresee the explosion of population. He didn't foresee that. But he clearly foresaw the need for the spiritual evolution, that he clearly foresaw. Sometimes uh, we say, uh, among the devotees, we get a little frustrated. We say, ah, the, the world is a dog's curly tail. You can't straighten it out. You can't fix the world. You can't fix the world. It's, it'll go on in its own way. It comes from a story told by Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda about, uh, well, to make a long story short, a ghost uh, caught a hold of a man and uh, wouldn't let him go. He had to give him something to do or he'd break his neck. So finally... He ran out of things to give him to do, and so the man was in trouble and uh, ran to his teacher, and the teacher said, well, here, give him this dog's curly tail and tell him to straighten it out. So the ghost very carefully straightened out the tail of the dog and said, okay, it's done, and he let it go, and the tail curled up again. And so, again, the ghost straightened out the tail nicely and said, okay, here it is, and as soon as he let go, it curled up again. So... Uh, finally, he was caught. He had to be. He was finally. He released the man. Uh, so, the world is like that. We say you can't straighten it out. Well, let's see what Swamiji says about it. He doesn't say exactly that. He says, when we know that this world is like a dog's curly tail and will never get straightened, we shall not become fanatics. If there were no fanaticism in the world, it would make much more progress than it does now. Swami Vivekananda was not against evolution, not against being a force for good rather than a force for evil, only recognizing that there will always be crookedness in the world. We can't straighten it all together. We can't be fanatics. If it was impossible to do any good to the world, why would the great souls even bother coming? They come for this purpose, to raise our consciousness to a higher level. All the religions have uh, also a world-denying element in them. And this can contribute to uh, a, an apathy towards uh, ecological, facing the ecological problems. Vedanta, sometimes we say, well, the world is actually impermanent. It had a beginning, it'll have an end. It's impermanent, why worry about it? It's, or it's maya, it's just maya, it's the play of maya. What can we do about it? 
That's true. It's one attitude. But it doesn't apply in this context. That attitude applies when we are trying to cultivate a little bit of detachment, a little bit of renunciation, a little bit of vairagya. Here we are developing our motive for evolution. We are developing our uh, understanding of our roles as mm, seers, as uh, bearers of the message of Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. And all of us are such. All of us who are devotees and students of Vedanta are also bearers of the message of Vedanta. Here we are... mm, trying to gird our loins to spread the message of Vedanta and help usher in the next evolutionary step which humankind is about to make. It's an interesting story told about the Holy Mother. And it illustrates how she lived in this in this recognition of the interconnectedness of everything, in the spirit of yajna, a man came to the ashrama in Calcutta with a basket of fruits. The fruits were meant for offering in the shrine. And the man asked the monks what he should do with the basket. They told him, just throw it out in the lane. So uh, the mother, of course, was upstairs. She got up and went to the porch. She looked at the lane and said to this devotee who's recording this, she said, uh, look there, they have asked him to throw away such a nice basket. It does not matter for them in the least. They are all monks and totally unattached. But we cannot allow such waste. We could have utilized the basket at least for keeping the peelings of the vegetables. She asked someone to fetch the basket and wash it. The basket was kept for some future use. After some time, a beggar came to the house and shouted for some alms. The monks felt annoyed and said rudely, Go away now, don't disturb us. At these words, the Holy Mother said, Did you hear their remarks? They have driven away the poor man. They could not shake off their idleness and give something to the beggar. He only wanted a handful of rice. And they could not take the trouble to do this little bit of work. Is it proper to deprive a man of what is his due? Even to the cow we owe these peelings of the vegetables. We should hold these near her mouth. I'd like to propose uh, one way we can start in our small way to bring about this spiritual transformation we're talking about. Try to begin breaking down the barriers between people. Is to expand our we. Expand our we. When we say we, we most, all our we's generally, they're little we's. My family. We, we, my family. My school, we did this at school. My city, we won the Super Bowl. My state, or my country, my religion. These are all small we's. I am American, I am Russian, I am Chinese, I am Indian, I am Pakistani. I am Hindu, I am Muslim, I am Christian. These are all small we's. We need a big we. This is also the message of the Dalai Lama. We need a big we. Human beings, we are human beings. 
We are all inhabitants of Mother Earth. We are all manifestations of the Divine. We are all children of the Divine Mother. That's a big we. It's a we when we don't exclude anyone from it. So that's one way we can just start to feel our kinship with all. No one is a stranger, my child, says Holy Mother. No one is a stranger, my child. The whole world is your own. So we can start to expand our we and start to feel it. I'll close with a quote from Swami Vivekananda on the utility of spiritual evolution and the result of spiritual realization. Religious realization does all the good to the world. This will be the great good to the world resulting from such realization that instead of this world going on with all its friction and clashing, if all mankind today realize only a bit of that great truth, the aspect of the whole world will be changed, and in place of fighting and quarreling, there would be a reign of peace. This indecent and brutal hurry, which forces us to go ahead of everyone else, will then vanish from the world. With it will vanish all struggle, with it will vanish all hate, with it will vanish all jealousy, and all evil will vanish away forever. Gods will live then upon this earth. This very earth will then become heaven. And what evil can there be when gods are playing with gods, when gods are working with gods, and gods are loving gods? That is the great utility of divine realization. The time is coming when these thoughts will be cast abroad over the whole world. Instead of living in monasteries, instead of being confined to books of philosophy to be studied only by the learned, instead of being the exclusive possession of sects and of a few of the learned, they will all be sown broadcast over the whole world so that they may become the common property of the saint and the sinner, of men and women and children, of the learned and of the ignorant. They will then permeate the atmosphere of the world and the very air that we breathe will say with every one of its pulsations, Thou art that. And the whole universe with its myriads of suns and moons through everything that speaks with one voice will say, Thou art that. <laughs>